This episode of See Here is brought to you by Cobb Pokins and Elvis Depression. to episode 10 we've reached double digits Woo-hoo! of the see here oh, oh. Actually, i think we should all do a uh, rousing chorus of uh, mystery train hang on we'll get back to that in a minute welcome to episode 10 of the see here podcast if this is your first time welcome on board this is the podcast where we talk about music related films uh seems like a bit of a you know niche market but i think there's quite a lot of them out there so we could keep this podcast going for quite a time and there's a quartet of us and so my name is morris i'm in melbourne and from seoul in south korea we have mr tim merrill good evening tim train around howdy how you doing i'm i'm doing fantastic well i think we're going to have to do a rousing chorus of that before we start talking about the film uh and from bath in the uk Mr. Bernard Stickwell, good evening. Oh, I should say good afternoon to you, Bernard. Uh, it's good morning, actually. It's uh, not even midday yet. So, uh, is... how are you all doing? Oh, it's 11.30. That's right, because we started early. Yeah, yeah. just lounging in the morning, Sunday morning. You know, I thought, you know what? I'll do a bit of podcasting. So Better than there Sunday morning coming down. Your Sunday yes. morning going up. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Fantastic. And Moving on quickly, Morris. Is this thing on? Um, and normally, I'd be introducing the lovely, vivacious, pummeling princess of the pigskins. No, that's a that's a football, isn't it? Uh, anyway, I'd be introducing our wonderful cohort, Ms. Wendy Freeman from Chicago. But she's on some 24-hour horror movie marathon, is she not? I'm, I'm not sure. So to fill her incredibly big shoes is a man who has proven himself worthy for joining me on episode six of the See Here podcast from Denmark, Mr. Hank Hellman. Welcome back to the podcast, Hank. Thank you. Hello, everybody. It's a big honor to be here on your 10th anniversary. Who would ever have thought you'd make this far? So well, we, you know. cert- we certainly didn't. <laughs> yeah, I second that, yeah. Oh, hell no. Oh, hell no. <laughs> uh, no, thank you. We, um, so for those of you who... Um, haven't gone through all the episodes. Hank was uh, with me on episode six talking about the uh, wonderful film that came out in 2012 overseas, but only just made it to Australia this year, called uh, Good Vibrations. And um, go back to that episode to hear what we thought of that and uh, look that film up. But um, we both thought it was a wonderful piece of cinema uh, and a great soundtrack too, I must say. But we're going to be going... Um, back and covering a little bit of Jim Jarmusch for you tonight. And I think this must be, I think, film number three for him, or was it film number yeah, two or three? Um, Mystery Train. It's his third, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. It's his fourth one, actually. Oh, really? So there was Permanent Vacation. Yeah. And, right. Uh, uh, yeah, 
Stranger Than Kindness, Down By Law, and then this. Strange, Stranger in Paradise. Stranger Than Paradise. Oh, I'm sorry, yes. Oh, yeah, down, yeah. Was Down, yeah. By, law down before, by Law was before this? Yeah. Down, okay, all right. There you then go. Mystery Train. Yeah, oh, well. it was the so we'll, film. Well, we'll be talking about uh, our thoughts about Mystery Train and all sorts of uh, wonderful other delights, um, including uh, some great rockabilly music and the soundtrack for the film uh, in uh-huh. a very short time. But uh, for the uh, start of the program, uh, actually, before we talk about what it is that we've been listening to and watching, I should probably get a few home, oh, not home, uh, house, what's the expression I'm looking for, guys? Housekeeping. Housekeeping, thank you. There you go. I'm getting the shit out of the way. Um, yeah, yeah housekeeping shit out of the way. Out of the way. So um, if, uh, if you've listened to the show before and you've, all, you've thought, I want to get in contact with those people and tell them how much I like the show or how much I really think that they absolutely got a point about one of my favourite films just all wrong. We want to hear any feedback that you have, so you can email right. us at seehear, that's S-W-H-E-A-R podcast, podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can join the Facebook group. Just look up uh, See Here. That's, once again, spelled S-W-H-E-A-R. A bit of a pun there. See what we've done there. And um, uh, we'd be you know, honoured to have your company. Uh, and absolutely, if you, if you uh, would do us the honor as well of uh, maybe leaving us a bit of an iTunes review, I know, I know there's more than a few of you out there that have probably said, "What the hell are you guys doing covering that film, man? You should cover this. You should cover that." Well, we don't know unless you tell us. Yeah, we'd love so you. So we'd to... like we'd like to hear hear from all the crickets out there. Cree, cree, cree. Um, no, we'd love to hear mm-hmm. from you and uh, you know tell us what you think we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, what films we should be covering and the beauty of a film podcast like this is you know they can be great films they can be shit films right. uh, they can be famous they can be obscure we don't care as long as we can get hold of them we take all them. things into consideration we take all things into consideration and you know recently someone had posted on facebook about uh, newsies the disney film i think it was no no it was swing kids i'm sorry that's right yeah swing was, kids yeah that was yes i remember reading was, that that's right yeah and I'm glad somebody posted that because, you know, like we'll, we will gladly take that into consideration. I mean, any suggestions are appreciated and noted. I mean, you know, we're, uh, we're not afraid to go to places where other podcasts might say, Xanadu, fuck no. We'll <laughs> I, go there. I, this is the one podcast that would say, Xanadu, with, uh, as a double with Can't Stop the Music, we'd say, oh, fuck, fuck yeah. yeah, I miss. <laughs> yeah, or um, as a, as a triple we'll do that next episode. So, sorry, one Ooh, of the time. As a triple with Sgt. Peppers. Oh, yeah, my, my three favorite films. Um. <laughs> now, I would like to just uh, chime in here, Morris. Yes. Uh, and say one thing. We will consider absolutely anything except Rattle and Hum, the U2 movie. Other right. than that, say- absolutely anything. Well, you know, but here's the thing, yeah. here's the thing Sticky. This, film, this podcast... Is you know we can we can hang shit on it. We can sort of say no one out of ten or zero out of ten. So I'm I'm afraid to say that when you signed on the dotted line that said you were going to join the CBS oh, no. podcast, if we had, really? if we can get, I tell you what, if we get twenty people out there who say that they oh. want to hear us speak about Rattle and Hum, we will cover it. Terry oh, Frost, dad. Terry Frost has, was running a a campaign for Paleo Cinema to say that if someone would pay. Uh, him is like a, a, in this Patreon campaign uh, would uh, pay money towards a new microphone or something, then he would cover the Star Wars trilogy. And he hates the Star Wars trilogy, not quite as much as we hate you too, 
but but nearly as much, I would say. Um, or but, but you know, we're, we're not even we're not going to ask for money. We're not going to ask for anything. But if we get twenty people who are devoted enough right. to the show to say that they want to hear us cover rattle and hum, we'll do it. I'm sorry, that's that's it. Or we could do a point. We could do a point counterpoint. Have somebody come on and just say, "Well, this is why I love it," and then we could say, "Yeah, and this is why Bono sucks a fat dick." <laughs> <laughs> All right. this, this is why you are mentally challenged yeah <laughs> oh, there, there oh, you've God. gone and you've just gone I've, gotten rid of I've shot of myself in the foot haven't I yeah, I've shot yeah. myself in the foot I'm, um, I've built a rod for my own back and it's likely that I might be hoisted by my own petard as well oh. so That's right. yeah I'm screwed I'm screwed oh well so what we're gonna do well you know what they say about the road to hell man I mean <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah we- the soundtrack is you too Listen, I'd like to hear the voice of Hank Hellman because um, I want to know. That's Hank, right. What have you been watching of late, or been listening to of late, that's uh, really floated your boat? Well, I want to mention not an album actually, but I went to a show with this guy that I'd never heard about before. Mm-hmm. Sort of by by accident, I ended up going to a, a concert with a guy called Sturgill Simpson and his band, and he's this uh, sort of outlaw country guy from a young guy from. A, Kentucky, I believe. Oh, wow. I'd, I'd never heard of these guys. I just saw that they were playing somewhere I, I sometimes frequent, and I thought, well, I've got nothing else going on. So I went there, and it was pretty fucking great. And, uh, you know, really sort of, it's got a sort of an old-school 70s outlaw country vibe to it. He sounds a lot. His voice sounds a lot like uh, Waylon Jennings used to. And uh, uh, But they but they've also got a bit of a sort of a psychedelic element, so there were a lot of sort of long passages with just a lot of loud guitars, and the, and he was had a great voice and a great band, and it was a really good time. Is, and is, the, he, is he a young guy? Yeah, a young band. I think I think they have uh, two albums out. And just to show that uh, you know they have some balls, they called uh, their second album is called Meta Modern Sounds and Country Music. <laughs> so it's kind of like a riff on that old. Ray Charles. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Hank, have you heard uh, have you heard Shooter Jennings stuff? I know him a little bit, and I know that he has also commented on, on this guy Sturgill Simpson that he sounded, you know, an awfully lot like his dad, but he thought it was it was cool, so he didn't mind too much. Yeah. I, I know a little yeah. bit. I don't. I know Wayland Jennings better. I know Shooter Jennings a little bit. Yeah, I'm the same way, but I thought I'd, I'd give his son a listen, and he's very different. He's closer to new country than he is to the old stuff that I'm acclimated to, but, you know, yeah, the fl- yeah. the apple wouldn't fall far from the tree, but it fell a little far. Yeah, but if you have any sort of interest in a sort of old-school outlaw country with sort of a, a bit of a new spin on it, you should check out Sturgill Simpson. He's a pretty cool guy. Uh, How do you spell that, Hank? Is that S-T-U-R? Sturgill? Yeah, G-I-L-L. Yeah, cool. I'm going to uh, look him up. He's just been touring Europe a little bit. I think they might be going back to the States now. But it's a really good live band. When you mention uh, Outlaw Country, so I'd be interested to know whether uh, our good friends Davey McLemore or uh, Eric Reanimator would be familiar with them. I have no idea. Because, yeah. But I think I think they'll like it. I don't know if they've heard it because it's it's sort of new and relatively unknown. I think. And I know they're, they're, Eric's been a real champion of uh, of the outlaw country movement. He's uh, talked a lot yeah. about it on the shows. Yeah, but I'll uh, I'll uh, it's, it's... I'll post something on the group and and sort of uh, you know nice. add those yeah. two guys and see if they've. It's it's kind of funny, you know, because I mean I think in Europe 
uh, artists are more appreciated and they're more really, you know, uh, people really bend an ear more to listen to what people are doing. Whereas, you know, in the States, you know, you, you, you could throw a rock and hit a shit kicker. I mean, like people, people don't really, yeah. you know, it's dime a dozen, you know, in the United oh. States. So people really don't get, they don't get that attention that they do in Europe. I mean, in Europe, people were really listening to a guy with an acoustic guitar or somebody that's really playing something decent. Whereas in the States, it's just like, you know, next, you know, like an assembly line of, you know, old country or, you know, these kind of revivalists, you know. It's interesting you mentioned that, Tim, because I think when it was it two years ago or whenever when we recorded that bonus episode of uh, The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Rodrigo, and we were talking about uh, Around Midnight and Bird, and we made that very same point how jazz musicians um, you know, couldn't, couldn't get arrested in uh, in America, but you know they go off to uh, to Europe and, and yeah. uh, France and Denmark, um, and were treated like kings. That's true, right? No, but it's this thing where artists. I know people that are musicians say that they had to struggle playing, you know, from the east coast to the west coast of the United States. But then they go over to Europe and they can play from England all the way up into Finland, you know, and through Scandinavia, no problem. And they've got yep. guaranteed gigs, and they, they go from city to city to city to city, no problem. But trying to play across the United States, is like pulling teeth. This is going to tie in a little bit with the film uh, we're going to be discussing later, but I think a lot of us here in Europe have a kind of romanticized view of the States. And when we get uh -huh. somebody who is a proponent of that exactly. kind of thing, I think we, you know, we take to it quite a bit more than uh, people in the States, where it's just like you say, it's uh, a dime a dozen with people like that, so... I just said that's very topical, certainly. But we'll get back to that, I imagine. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. 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 All right. So sticky. Um, okay. Well, uh, two things I'll go through quickly. First of all, uh, a documentary I watched. Um, I think two days ago, actually. Uh, I'm a little behind the curve on this one. I expect pretty much everyone's seen it already. I know there was a lot of discussion of it on various Facebook groups a little while ago. Uh, but uh, Jiro dreams of sushi. Right, yeah, oh, yeah. I've, I've seen that this year, yeah, yeah, I, I was, yeah. I, it was months after um, uh, Loaf had you know, raved about it before I got the chance yeah. to see it, but yeah, yeah, it was great. It's a yeah, good one. Just, uh, yeah, just wonderful, I mean, um, who would have thought you could make a you know 90 minute documentary about uh, an old guy who makes sushi, but uh, it's just wonderful. Right, uh, but I've always said wonderful. the best documentaries are the ones that, you know, you have no interest in whatsoever initially and they just pull you yeah. in you know, yeah totally. you're thinking yeah. how could i i'm not going to sit there for 90 minutes and watch a documentary about sushi or watch a documentary about a penis museum or gg allen or anything else you know but then you sit there and you're like everyone's like come on we got to do something no 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 i gotta finish this i gotta finish this yeah i gotta i gotta watch this now it's you know but the, I the could film, have watched another is, 90 minutes. I mean, the film is less about... You know, it's, it's not so much a food film, or it's less about uh, how he prepares sushi, but it's more about the dedication and devotion that yeah. a man has to his his uh, craft or profession or what he sees like he as says, a life right. calling. You have to fall in love with your job and mm. uh, just give your life to it, he says. And uh, he's obviously done that. Mm. And it's also about a uh, kind of a generational thing where it's portrait of him and his two sons and their relationship and um yeah just right. absolutely fantastic as i say really good uh, and the other thing i just wanted to mention quickly uh new melvin's album called hold it in oh yeah uh, 
featuring two members of the Butthole Surfers this time. Now, I got to say, I absolutely adore the Melvins, but they crank out so much stuff. Sometimes it's not quite as good as it could be, in, in, in my uh, personal opinion. But this one is the best album they've done for quite a while. Excellent. Really, really good. And a real odd mixture of stuff, which you'd kind of expect from the Melvins. But uh, kicks ass. So hold it in by the Melvins on Ipecac Records. What do the feedback ears crew? Have, have you gotten in contact with uh, John or Jeff or, or Nathan about this? Because they're big... Melvin's nuts. I haven't, uh, I haven't contacted them about it, but uh, I've certainly seen some posts in the uh, in the Facebook group, and it seems that everyone's digging it. So, oh yeah, I'm a big Melvin's guy. They're touring with this record now too, with Pincus and uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, Jeff, the other dude, and uh, yeah, yeah, Paul Leary and Jeff Pincus, isn't it? Yeah, Paul yeah. Leary, sorry, Leary and Pincus. Yeah, yeah I'm just having yeah. a brain fart. Yeah, but. Yeah, I've heard bits and pieces of it. Some of it okay. reminds me of like old vin- vintage ZZ Top. Yeah, and that and it's... some of it's got that real groove, like it's got that heavy, almost like you were talking about a while ago about Harvey Milk. Some of it reminds me of that yeah. a little yeah, bit. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's got a couple of really sort of upbeat, poppy numbers as well, which uh, you oh, know, yeah. almost the power pop kind of vein, you know. So. Well, that's wow. that's the thing with the Melvins is everybody thinks you know if you don't know the Melvins you would just assume that they're just this wall of noise feedback kind of heavy metal sludgy, but that's only just an aspect of what they are because yeah, I mean you know w- w- one of my favorite tracks that they've done recently was almost a military march, almost like oh, a, like a what? sergeant uh, roll call. Yeah. You know yeah. where they're doing they're doing actually like a parade march like you know here we are here we are here we are here we are in the groove in the groove you know and they're doing almost yeah. like a callback like like a military yeah. callback thing and it's amazing like it's it's yeah. really good you know but yeah I, I I would really want to get into that new Melvin's record but you're right they put out so much stuff like these guys are just a machine <laughs> so and yeah Buzz has just done that solo yeah. LP hasn't he so um, yeah they just right. they never the stopped acoustic they records. Never stopped. He, he was just no. tour, he was just touring Australia I think in the last four to six weeks I think oh okay yeah yeah right wow. but yeah like you say Tim they are a machine so um, but yeah don't, you know don't discount right. them check out the new album it's really really good Timothy cool. alright well as for listening wise I was just listening to a new album by a band from Sweden called Goat that I've really oh, been digging yeah. And they're kind of bizarre. They're kind of like a, a mixture of like 60s psychedelica, Afro-funk, uh, kind of world music. And it's just really bizarre, trippy dance music. Like, I mean, to me, you know, a lot of people would say dance music. They would think, you know, like, uh, I don't know, techno or, you know, that kind of thing. Or uh, what's that? That, uh, uh, oh. Whatever, but uh, it's it's a really really it's their second album, and it's really amazing. It's it's really worth digging into. I mean, if you're a fan of Fela or a fan of any of the old Africa funk stuff, it's really you know. And some, there's elements in it too of Can and uh, the German Krautrock stuff as well. But it's a really really fun record, and it's and it goes all over the place. But, I mean, this is the kind of record, you know, a Sunday afternoon, you put it on, you're bouncing around the house, or uh, or you can put it on at a party, and I think it would uh, everyone would appreciate it. There's nothing that, that everyone, anyone would turn their nose up at. Um, in terms of film, I just watched two documentaries. 
the one I had previously mentioned, the Morris, uh, who's Harry Nilsson and uh, mm. what is he talking? I mean, uh, what are they saying about me? And uh, it's an amazing documentary. And I have to be forthright in saying that uh, Nilsson was responsible for one of my favorite childhood albums of all time, and that was an album called The Point. And if you ever get a chance, I implore you to go out, and you can find this album on YouTube. And it's a whole narrative album structured around almost like a Dr. Seuss tale of this land where everyone has a point on their head. And then this one boy, Oblio, is born without a point. So he's ostracized from you know the society, and he's sent out into the wilderness where he meets all these other characters like talking rocks and all these other things, and he finds out that everybody else doesn't have a point. But they also but that's their point, is that they don't have a point. You know? <laughs> this sounds very a literal Dr. point. Dr. Seuss. But um it's an amazing, amazing album. That's what I'm saying. It's a do- like a Dr. Seuss based, you know, almost but the songs are just incredible. Mm-hmm. And Harry Nilsson, I mean like when you realize what he was responsible for, like holy shit, man, like all these songs coming up like People like, you know, Paul Williams and Randy Newman going, man, you know, Nilsson was like basically like the American Beatles with one guy. Mm. And, you know, but the problem was, was that Nilsson was also self-destructive and he and he, he was an alcoholic and um, he burned a lot of bridges. You know? So he was one of the vampires, it, right? Right. The Hollywood vampires. Right. The group with John Lennon and uh, Mickey Dolenz and Alice Cooper and, and Harry. But he he actually uh, almost became like they say that Billy Preston was the fifth Beatle, but I I actually say that Harry was the sixth Beatle because he like you really have to see this documentary, Morris. I, I'm telling you because like it, it really goes deep into the relationship that Harry had with John Lennon and Harry had with uh, Ringo. Right. And Ringo was his best man at his wedding. Oh wow. But it, but it's it's an incredible documentary. I mean, just to see the uh, the ability that this guy had, and just how you know he didn't plan on living long, and and he didn't plan on really you know making a making a dent like he did. But it was incredible. But the other the other documentary I saw that that kind of uh, connected with this was I saw the uh, Superman documentary about Shep Gordon. Right, right. There's been some talk of that on one of the Facebook groups oh, today. Oh man. This was amazing. Like this is a really, really wicked, wicked documentary. If you don't know who Shep Gordon is, he was basically he's almost like the the, the real life definition of like Woody Allen Zelig character. <laughs> Here here's a guy who winds up, you know, trying to be a social worker in California. He gets drummed out from a prison because they don't want him. He winds up going into a hotel in Los Angeles one night. He hears this woman screaming outside, thinks she's being raped. So he goes down to find her and a guy beside the pool, half naked, and she smacks him. And she says, "We're making love. We're, you know, I'm not. Nobody's raping me. Leave me alone." So the next morning, he goes downstairs and he sees the same woman. She says, "Are you the guy I punched last night?" He says, "Yeah." She goes, "Oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to hit you. My name's Janice. Janice Joplin. This is my friend Jimi Hendrix." <laughs> so then he's hanging out with them and then Jim Morrison comes over and then and he's the guy that's dealing them all weed and then 
Hendrick says, well, the cops come by here all the time trying to find people. And he says, you're going to have to explain to them how you can pay for your hotel. And he goes, well, how am I going to do that? He goes, well, tell them you're a manager. And he goes, well, who am I going to manage? And Hendrick says, well, I know this band. He goes, this band called Alice Cooper. They're terrible. <laughs> and, and that's that's how it starts. But this guy winds up managing like fucking Teddy Pendergrass. He winds up managing like everybody in the 70s. He winds up like, you know, managing Emeril Lagrassi, all these high-end chefs. He winds up managing Groucho Marx for fuck's sakes. Oh, holy moly. <laughs> oh my God. Like it's in it's insane. I I don't want I'm not going to spoil it, but it's it's just this guy you know, and, and what's funny is, you know, that I think a couple of episodes ago, we were talking about that photograph of the Hollywood vampires, or maybe you and I were talking, Morris. Yeah. There's a famous photograph with uh, Keith Moon, Mickey Dolenz, Harry Nilsson, Alice Cooper, and Anne Murray. That's right. Yeah, you posted that on the group, I think. Yeah, we, Right, we and everyone just... is like... How the hell did she wind up getting a picture <laughs> with those guys, right? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Well, well, what happens is that, you know, this guy, Shep Gordon, really hated the heavier stuff. And he loved soul and the popular stuff. So he had heard this girl, young Annie Murray from Canada, and he was enamored with her. But everybody in L.A. was like, man, this is, you want to manage this girl? She's so virginal and innocent. Like, what the hell, you know? So then he basically got an idea where he, he begged all his buddies and the vampires. He said, please, please, you know, come on down to the show and at the whiskey or whatever and see Andy Murray play, right? So they came down just as a favor for him, and they all got their picture taken with him, with, with Ann Murray. Mm. So, that, so then all of a sudden everybody's like, who the hell is this Ann Murray woman? <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe she's not so pure and virginal after all. And after that, she took off. So, like, but but the one thing I want to say about this documentary is that there's actually more about Alice in this documentary than there is in the Alice Cooper documentary, and it's better. Right. Okay. Now I have to see it because I think we discussed yeah. this off uh, one Wednesday night, Tim. Where um, you know, I think we're both grateful for the existence of Super Duper Alice Cooper, but oh yeah, but you know, just to have that footage, but really as as sort of like a, a uh, a history of the man, maybe maybe less so. There's a lot that overlaps with the two, but but I find that this was far superior in my opinion, right? Right. But um, but yeah, it's a great documentary, and it usually you know the other thing is too is like some people were complaining that I had read reviews of this documentary. They were saying, well, where's the negative side of Shep Gordon? Like, where's where's the the tragedy? The you know. And I'm like, listen, you know, not every documentary has to be sweet and sour. Mm. I mean, I mean, it's like he does come out and say there is a lot of sour about his life, as fantastic as it is. He comes out and says there are things that he's not he's not happy with about you know, but uh, but it's it, it's not that all. I, I don't think that has to be a, a, a mandatory component of all documentaries, right. saying that you know you have to see the highs as well as the lows. I mean, it's just you know. Just but I think Mike, well, Mike Myers did a good job with this. I really think he did, because he was the director and the producer of this. Mike Myers. Yeah. Wow. Who'd have thunk? Oh, maybe. He's yeah, gonna, this maybe is supposed he's to be his come ahead of him. Right. This is supposed to be his comeback film, but we'll see. Hmm. All right. Um, I'll just quickly rattle off a couple of things I was saying to uh, Hank before we uh, 
all went on air that uh, I went last night to see a film I've been wanting to see for maybe about two months since I saw the trailer originally. It's called Whiplash. And um, now that, of course, now that we're recording, I can't remember the name of the director. But um, this film, I'm not even sure how, you know, whether it's been released much in the States. Uh, but uh, this this film, it tells the story of um, a young drummer who's um, who's been... Uh, well, he's, he's about 19 years old. He's just been accepted into a very prestigious music school. And um, the... Uh, the band, the jazz band instructor is um, a bit like Ali Ermi's character in Full Metal Jacket. You don't want to fuck with this guy. He, he just is going to wreck your day. But, you know, the, there's themes of... Uh, basically, this, uh, the, the instructor sort of talks about, uh, I don't want you to accept mediocrity. I'm here to push you beyond your limits. Um and but you know the question is you know do his end do his means justify the end and there's an absolute ton of stuff to discuss. I'd really love to cover this film sometime next year. But uh, the music is great. Uh, the the lead actor he is a real drummer, but it's not him drumming in the film. I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, the um, the the character of the father who who's basically like not the drummer's role model because he'd accepted mediocrity was um, played by Paul Reiser from that horrible Mad About You program. Although I've heard some of his stand-up comedy and it's pretty good. Uh, but um, unfortunately, there was no one else really in the in the cast who I knew. Uh, I know that someone had gone and mentioned J.K. Simmons <coughs> was uh, they're a big fan of and I don't think I've seen anything with him. He was, uh, he was J. Jonah Jameson in all three of the Spider-Man movies. Oh, well, that would explain it. And uh, he was also uh, in Oz, the uh, HBO prison program from way back when. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. That's, that's one I've always meant to watch, but never have. Um, okay. Well, uh, he's, in some, he's in some of the Coen Brothers movies as well, I think. I think oh, they really? use him sometimes. Where did I miss him in yeah, the Coen Brothers so. films? I've seen. Oh, he was in Burn After Reading, wasn't he? Yep. Okay, right. Okay, now I remember. All right. He's. Um, but yeah, look, in this film, he absolutely plays down to perfection um the the band instructor from hell uh and i mean yeah look i i urge you all to go see this as i was saying to hank as well before off here it's not just that it tells a really interesting story but it's visually really really well thought out i imagine that there was a lot of storyboarding that went in place uh before the uh, before a single frame was shot it just it looks fantastic the lighting is great uh, the the shots are imaginative, um, and, and it's just got a terrific story to tell. Uh, and really, there there are moments. That, this is why it's done so well. Where the J.K. Simmons character, where he has the band all scared shitless of him, and you know, I'm sitting there in the audience, and I'm feeling petrified, and I've got a screen between him and myself. But um, uh, I think Wendy posted something on the Facebook page that said, "Well, that's exactly how." You know, she teaches her drum students. So, you know, there you go. It's, it's a realistic tale. And um, I've got a whole bunch of gigs that are coming up over the next uh, uh, month or, or month and a half or so. Um, I went to see a, a band from Sydney called The Clouds, which were nowhere near as big as they should have been in the 90s. And they spent you know, a few years, quite a few years split apart. But they got together again about two, three years ago. <laughs> 
and I went to see them last year and I went to see them last week. I've come back to Melbourne, did a whole bunch of uh, their old material, but they've written some new songs. And they're sort of, you know, the, these two um, uh, singers, uh, Trish and Jody, who have really, really sweet sounding harmonies, but they're. Um, but really, they would have held. Their, they, I think musically, they held their own against any of the more hard rocking groups of the '90s. Um, so they managed. They're not quite Sunny Power Pop. Um, they're they're a bit rockier than that. But their voices are a good juxtaposition to the rockiness of the music. Uh, and in the middle of this week, I'm going to see for the first tour in 29 years by Pat Metheny. I'm um, really looking forward to uh, seeing that this Wednesday. Wow. And um, uh, to round the week off next weekend, going to go see uh, the stage production of Once. And that film is a big, big favourite of mine. So I'm very keen to see how the stage production is going to hold up. I've only wow. heard good things about it till now. So you got a full calendar there, Morris. I, I believe I do. I believe I yeah. do, Mr. Sticky. But, um, you know, uh, I, there was a time for about a year or year and a half there where I wasn't really getting out to see much live music and um, a good friend of mine went and said to me, you know what, words that you will never say on your deathbed. Gee, I went to too many concerts in yeah. my life. So you know, I took that to heart. So That's right. go catch some live music. Yeah. All right. Um, well, what was supposed to be a 10-15-minute uh, segment has turned out to be 33 minutes or whatever it's going to be by the time I've edited any ums and ahs that I've set out. Uh, so what we'll do now is we'll go to a, a quick uh, break. And then we'll come back and Tim, Hank, Bernie and myself will discuss for your audio pleasure Jim Jarmusch's film of 1989, Mystery Train. We'll be right back. Train I saw on the television the other day where those Chinese over in China, they all want to eat macaroni and cheese. Now, don't you think that kind of odd, what with all the Chinese food they got? Room 25 for the lovely ladies. Well, it was right here in this very room where Mr. Filch recorded the likes of Howlin' Wolf, Rufus Thomas, Carl Perkins, Roy Orbison, Jerry Lee Lewis, and of course, the king of rock and roll himself, Elvis Presley. Thank you. Good night. Honey, what are you doing? Shut up and grab the bubbles. trouble. We need a place to stay invisible for a little while. What have you been drinking? Smells like kerosene. Jesus! Whoa, where am I? You? What are you doing here? Well, I, I don't really know myself. Welcome back to episode 10 of See Here Podcast. Thank you once again for joining us. And there's myself and Bernie Sticky and Tim Merrill and our special guest Hank Hellman from uh, Denmark uh, replacing uh, 
Well, not replacing. You can't really replace Wendy, can you? But just, you know, really. Yeah, you can. All right, yeah, yeah we're replacing Wendy. Um, and we're here to talk about Tim's choice for this episode, which is Jim Jarmusch's film of 1989, uh, Mystery Train. So I'll get to you in a second, Tim, because this is your choice. But um, just in case you're one of the few people who haven't seen it, uh, just a quick pricey. So this is from Wikipedia. Mystery Train is a 1989 independent anthology film written and directed by Jim Jamush and set in Memphis, Tennessee. The film comprises of a triptych of stories involving foreign protagonists unfolding over the course of the same night. I think that's as far as I'll read. Um, so I hadn't seen uh, this film in a long, long time. And in fact, I hadn't even watched much Jamush in a long, long time. Uh, but regardless of wherever it is that you stand on him, I'd almost say that Jim Jarmusch is a genre unto itself, not just a not just a director. And, you know, even films as diverse as you know, Night on Earth and Dead Man or Ghost Dog all look very recognisably like a Jim Jarmusch film. So, Tim, your pick. What's your history with the film and with Jim Jarmusch in general? Well, I think with this film in particular, you know, with this podcast, I've told people, you know, about the general gist of what we do with C here, and I, I mentioned to a friend of mine that I wanted to cover Mystery Train, and he said, well, wait a minute, it isn't really a music movie. And I said, but au contraire, it is. And he said, well, you know, how, how far do you go? You know, if somebody mentions an artist in the in the movie or, or one's particular song is played do you still count it as a music movie he said you know like where when, when does it stop becoming a music movie when does it start becoming a music movie and i think that you know with with mystery train i mean jarmusch to me has always had a connection to music right from the the first film that he did and right up into the present whether it's soundtracks or you know working with musicians as actors um all kinds of different ways that he's incorporated music into his his films right but with mystery train to me there's a real ambiance it, it's it's almost like it's it's soaked it's saturated with the whole story of of what happens in memphis and i mean you know I don't want to go any further. Like we'll we'll get into it, but it's about you know to me the movie kind of exemplifies what Memphis is and what Memphis isn't. Right. You know, and it's it's about you know expectations. It's 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 about images. It's about uh, you know um, the whole the whole mythos of Elvis and the whole mythos of not just Elvis but you know. The city itself, I mean, with, you know, the two protagonists and they're kind of, you know, tit for tat about Elvis and Carl Perkins and, and Sun Studios and everything else that goes with that. But I, I, I think that, you know, Jarmusch, you know, I like most of his films that he he's, you know, he has an ability to kind of focus on certain aspects and really with laser point precision get to the core i think of of certain um i don't know like the soul of what he what he wants to look at i mean 
He's, he did a later film, Ghost Dog, where he actually worked with the guys, you know, from uh, Wu-Tang Clan. Right, that's right, yep. And he really, you know, gets into this deep down heart of what hip-hop is all about. But it's not, but he, incorpor- but he mixes hip-hop with, like, you know, the whole idea of the Japanese samurai, you know, and he, and he mixes two things together that you would never expect to go together. Mm. But they, But they wind up, you know, working like stinking shit you know they, they just perfect blend you know but um well with mystery train i think you know this film is 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 the real he gets he gets to places i think that a lot of people don't look at in the in the terms of the mythos of of memphis and beale street and elvis and all of it mm, mm. um hank you um were quite happy to be part of uh the quartet for this uh, for this uh, episode. Give us a bit of a rundown on where your history with this film is. When did you first see it, and your initial thoughts, and and why you were so enthusiastic to uh, join us this time around? Well, well, I like uh, Jamush, especially a lot of the earlier stuff. And uh, I thought I'd seen this one a long time ago, but I think actually, on upon revisiting the other day, that I've only seen bits and pieces a long time ago. Okay. So a lot of it was a uh, was was new to me, so you know it was uh, it was really uh, glad to have the opportunity to revisit that one because uh, you know, you know how it is you're pretty sure you've seen something and uh, turns out that probably you haven't and uh, mm-hmm. well what about on Jupiter at the time of his death if he were on Jupiter uh, Elvis would have weighed six hundred forty eight pounds. 648. Damn. Sticky? Um, I f- first saw this, uh, it must have been probably around the time it came out, maybe a little later. Mm. But it's um, it's interesting watching it again. It, it feels very much um, of its time. It was released in, what, 89? So I guess it was shot in 88, mm-hmm. something mm. like that. Uh, but around that period uh, in the UK, we had a, they were kind of like they were a distribution company, a studio, uh, a video label as well called Palace Pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, and they put out a lot of, not just American, but uh, sort of independent films from all over the place. But watching this again made me realize how much this film sort of crystallizes that kind of feel of independent movies from that period mm. and uh, the age I was then in um, well I, I was about you know 19 20 years old um, and it, you know it, it felt like the whole world was opening up to me because I was discovering this kind of stuff for the first time um, and this is just really sort of you know strongly uh, strongly evokes that period for me um, and I've got some issues with the film uh, and I, I have some issues with Jarmouche as well. Uh, it's weird because I do really enjoy his early stuff, but I do have a few problems with it. Some of it is maybe a little too arch and a little too self-aware. Um, but it, yeah, I really enjoyed revisiting it. And um, I think I got a lot more out of it now than I did back when uh, I first... I, I bought a second-hand uh, VHS tape from some video shop that was selling off some excess stock. I remember, uh, so I remember having that on my shelf for years and years. Um, but this is the first time I've revisited it in, God, easily 15 years, something like that. Wow. 
Well, yeah, I would, so, I'd say it's probably the same for me. I, I mean, I'm not quite sure why it is, but I didn't have so many strong memories of this. Although, I mean, my, my memories go of Jamush go back to um, Down by Law. Seeing that, I have memories of that, and I have memories of, uh, of Ghost Dog and Dead Man. But for some reason... Uh, the, the most predominant thing about my early vision of Jarmusch was for a film which I'm... Oh, look, I'm not sure the chronology, I, but I'd be pretty sure this came after it. It's a film that they discussed on Silver and Gold that I recommended to them uh, called In the Soup by the director Alexander Alexander Rockwell, I think. And right, with Buscemi. With yeah. Buscemi. And I, I'll, we'll get to it later on, but I can see a direct link between between the two films and that's um, got to be about the same time as this hasn't it pretty much uh, well they yeah so that, they must have um, been look a, it a, a year or a year or so either side for sure right um, oh, but, 92 in the soup was oh okay well there you go so I, I'd be yeah uh, I mean the, the feel of that film and, and Jim Jarmusch has a very funny cameo with I think it was a Carol Kane in um, in in the soup and the, the whole film has a, a very Jamush film. I mean, if, if you go back to um, uh, Stranger Than Paradise, so for instance, which I only watched this week for the first time, I sort of wanted to immerse myself in that early Jamush film, although I've never actually watched Permanent Vacation. But with those, not so much uh, fades, but the frequent blackouts and coming back. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of that in in the soup and these shots, which are, which you know you might get a a scene which could keep on going, but they say, oh no, we'll show ten seconds of this and then bring it back to this other part of the scene. They did that a lot in uh, in the soup, and there was a fair bit of that. I think that went on in um, Stranger Than Paradise. But uh, yeah, look, it's been a long time since I've seen this, and look, I, I was sort of thinking at first when you made the suggestion. That you know, or when you mentioned that your friends had gone and said to you, Tim, um, is you know really where does a rock and roll film, or where does a music film start, and where does it end? You know, how would you how would you classify? But yeah, look, I think we have very broad church here in the, uh, the See Here podcast land because uh, yeah, the the film is soaked in Memphis, and probably as we'll discuss a bit later on. Uh, the it's all about perception so we look we have three three stories and like the first story in particular okay so well you know maybe we should start off talking about that that's called uh, uh long way from yokohama yeah far from yokohama far from far from yokohama yeah, yeah, far from yokohama yeah Yo- um, they don't call it yokohama they call it yokohama and the two the two main characters uh jun and uh mitsuko yeah. They've come. They've come to Memphis with these high ideals. They're expecting to see. This is the town of Elvis Presley. This is the town of Sun Records. It's, it's going to be all amazing. And Jim Jamush goes at great pains. He's not showing Memphis like Woody Allen shows Manhattan. It's not glamorous. No. It's not glorious. It's it's not a it's not a dump, but it's just it's ordinary and and really what makes the place special is what you attribute to it they're the two disciples that are on their pilgrimage to mecca this is this is their mecca Mm. and and yet you you feel that it's a lot of it for them is 
something uh, of a of a checklist, isn't it? Because right. they they, um, they want to they, they go. There's this one great scene early on where um, after they've gotten off the train, they make their way into uh, the Sun Records studio, which is now you know, has tours going through it, and the American uh, travel guy or, or the, the the guide through Sun Records. Uh, is talking a million miles a minute, giving a speech that she's given thousands of times about this being the home of Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash and, and of course, the famous Elvis Presley, blah, 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 blah. And they don't understand a word that she's saying. They finish and they walk out and they say, well, we've been to Sun Records. And he combs his hair and she can just tick something off her list that that's uh, something that they've gone and done. They're not disappointed. They're not exhilarated. It's just something that they've done. And right. the, the pilgrimage has not been. Um, it, it's almost like they they didn't sort of come away saying, "Wow, this is not what we expected." It's just right. This is something we can tick off our list. Right. The thing is, too, I love that there's kind of this, uh, you know, division between the two of them, where you know she's has ultimate faith in Elvis, where he's just like, "No, Carl Perkins, Carl Perkins," you know, like there's there's better than Elvis, right? And then they get into the argument about where she wants to go to Graceland first, and then he says, no, let's go to Sun Records. And then she gives him those little puppy dog eyes, and he goes, okay, we'll go to Graceland first. And then it, they accidentally wind up walking by Sun Records, and it's just like, oh, I thought we were going to Graceland first. Well, it's here. Let's go in Sun Records, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so we, okay, so once again, coming back to your thing about... Um, whether this is a music film. I mean, yeah, I've already gone and made the case. Yes, certainly it is. And the ghost of Elvis hangs over Memphis and hangs over these stories. I mean, in every in every room. Okay, so we should really come to quite this. literally in uh, in one of them. Well, yeah. well I yeah. was gonna. Oh, I was oh, gonna oh. say I was gonna say, save this for the for later, but I should guess I should say it now. Is that my interpretation of the film is the fact that. I think that they're all, all three different segments of the film are different ruminations on Elvis, where, you know, the first part is the people that love Elvis, the second part were the people who are involved with Elvis, and the third part is the story of Elvis. Well, yeah, quite literally. Mm-hmm. That, 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 yeah, uh, the yeah. Joe's, the Joe Strummer character. Right. Um, I want to read something that I found very interesting. We have um, uh, a website here, an Australian website called Senses of Cinema. It's predominantly a very academic uh, cinema website, but they do have some really terrific essays. And there was an essay I found there about Jim Jarmusch, and I just want to read a, a few lines there that I thought really encapsulated a lot about what this film is about. It says, Jim Jarmusch is a filmmaker interested in what goes on in the margins of life. He's not concerned about the what's or the why's of people's actions like most filmmakers, but rather in how they got there. It's the time between the jump cuts that are the basis for many of Jarmusch's films. He's interested in documenting the mundane events that most people take for granted and shows that they are too filled with fascinating moments. His films are populated by characters who seem to have no real direction in life, who just happen to stumble onto adventures much like real life itself and that pretty much is the story of all of the people in this film so you know we got the um we got our, our uh, japanese tourists and actually the other thing about this film 
is Jarmusch has gone and said uh, that it really is about uh, a foreigner's perspective of America. So we've got the two Japanese tourists in the first segment. Uh, we've got the Italian widow who just happens to find herself in Memphis uh, circumstantially to pick up uh, the dead body of her, of her husband. We never really find out why, um, yeah. how he died. And the third segment, which is probably the most uh, story-based, has um, an Englishman uh, played by uh, Joe Strummer, and um, he, he keeps getting called Elvis, and he doesn't even like Elvis. And uh, his his circumstances about the breakup with uh, with his girlfriend, and and the, the common thing. Uh, outside of the music, which we'll get to, is that they all end up on the same night in this hotel called the Arcade Hotel that's run right. by Screamin' Jay Hawkins. Oh, man, he's the best in this. I mean, there's there's so many moments in this film, you know, that I keep looking at him and I, I kept thinking he should have been in so much film in his career. Like, he should have done so much more. Like there, there, there's bits where you know he's sitting there with uh, what was his name, uh, Celine Lee. Uh, I can't pronounce. The, uh, is, it, is it Cinque? C I N Q U E. Cinque. 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 Lee. Or we have, but he, he, but you know when he's talking, like when he's talking to him, there's moments when, you know, Screaming Jay to me is one of my all-time idols, and he was so unique. He's so unique. I mean, like, you know, there was nobody like Screaming Jay. Nobody. And just the way that he would laugh. Like, he's just got that, Whoa! you know, like, there's that, that, that kind of, like, sinister laugh in the film. And then there, there's one bit when, I'm not going to give a spoiler, but something occurs, a sound, and he wakes up. And the look on his face and his eyes going back and forth, he looks like a lion that is just about to just eat something. Mm. Like he's just he's just got that look like what the hell was that? Like he's just got that back and forth, you know. But he, you know, but the thing is too about Screaming Jay in in, in this film is that even though his musical persona, you know, he was known for being full on, he's really restrained in this. Right, right. And that yeah, makes him saying, even yeah. more intense. That even makes him even more intense. There's, you know, there's, is one, that... there's one moment in the film, I'm going to see if I can get a clip to play during the show, where it, it's almost like he brings a little bit of his wild, well-known person, persona to the fore, and that's where um, he's discussing <laughs> with, uh, with with the bellboy um, about their uniforms, and he says, you know, clothes yeah. make the man. I mean, look at look at that. Look at that suit you got on. <laughs> and, and he, he That's what I'm talking about. The laugh. That, that laugh. Yeah. Yeah. That laugh. It's just like that. Holy jeez. Sorry, sorry. Or I, else, get, I, I get the uh, feeling, Hank, you were going to say something before? Well, I was just going to say, so what Tim really is saying is that uh, Screaming Jay is his main man, just like that girl uh, in uh, Into the Paradise. Right. Absolutely. Yes. yes Absolutely. Yes. No, I mean... I watched that for the first time this week and just I, I freaked out, you know, just seeing her walking around with a tape recorder and every chance she gets, she's putting on, I put a spell on you. And, uh, right. Magic. I, I wonder. I wonder if that's how they got Screaming Jay into this film. Someone had gone and told him, "Hey, man, they're using your song in this film. This guy really digs you." And Jamish had this yeah. opportunity. Right. And I, I love I think, that bit. Uh, 
I think Screaming Jay steals the film actually. Mm. I think he's he's one of yeah. the, the the best things about it. Well, you should do like I do. Buy your own damn clothes over at Lansky's, somewhere like that. I mean, you know, it's like they say, the clothes make the man. I mean, look at that damn hat on your head. You're like a damn mosquito leg chimpanzee. I mean. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. not. I'm not denigrating the rest of the film because it is a very good film and I did enjoy it. But he's right. Um, he's right up there for me. I thought he was fantastic. I love the bit where he's. Uh, they have the. By the way, we have to say that the whole film is actually strung together with a, near, uh, a simple narration from a radio station, and Tom Waits is the DJ. Right. And but I love the bit where he's talking about that. Uh, what was it the squid? Squid. Uh, the hell's the name of it now? Oh, it's like Squid, a squid, squid Shack or something. Squiffy, yeah, Squid Shack squid or the or Squiffy, yeah. Squiffy Squid Shack or whatever. And, and Jiffy Squid. Jiffy, Jiffy Squid. squid. That's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what it is. Yeah. Jiffy yeah. Squid. Well, guess what? There's a brand new fast food seafood restaurant right here in Memphis. You probably heard the name already. That's right. Jiffy Squid. Fresh, juicy squid dipped in Jiffy squid. Own herbs and spices served with a tangy sauce with their own secret ingredients. Turn that damn thing off. You're listening to Tati Tyler, the man who brings you wall to wall. And then Screaming Jay's just like, Jiffy Squid, turn off that shit. And he's just like, <laughs> like that's that's so funny when he's just like, Squid, Jiffy Squid, oh, turn it off, man. That does sound pretty disgusting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, imagine like pulling up in your car into the, instead of the Jiffy Loop. It's uh, a yeah. Jiffy Squid. You just pull up, it's like a drive-through squid place or something. <laughs> so, Bernie, well, you, what you, would you, you, guys... you, you made mention before, you said that you found that there were some things about this that you found not completely satisfactory. So, um, before we sort of yeah, go it's... raving about what we liked, what, what were your reservations? Um, it's it's mainly the, the kind of style of filmmaking that uh, I suppose in a lot of ways Jim Jarmusch sort of pioneered or he's certainly one of the people who come to mind when you think of it but it is that slightly arch slightly knowing slightly like you say there's uh you know certain scenes where it should cut but it doesn't it lingers for a few more seconds and it, it feels just sort of intentionally sloppy in places now this is something i think he's refined over the years he doesn't do it so much now uh but again i think it was you know, it was part of the evolution of a filmmaker that he went through, and it was very much something which a lot of people seemed to be subscribing to at the time. Again, as you said, so um, at the time it wasn't an issue with me, but looking at it now, it just feels a little like, oh, cute! Look at what they're doing there. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. not. Uh, Look, um, I, I know that there was there was a lot of that movement that went on in the 90s I mean you know sort of like knowing a whole lot more about film now I can sort of see alright he's obviously been watching a lot of European cinema he's been watching a lot of the French New Wave and yet um, I think it was still pretty brave I mean we there's been a lot of talk I know we've gone and spoken about it before on the show about uh, and in the wider community obviously about you know Tarantino sort of uh, magpieing and taking things from uh, all manner well, of uh, Asian Asian uh, action films and, and and spaghetti westerns and putting things into his mash up regardless of whether you like it or not, but it's also seeming that um, uh, that Jamush is taking things here from 
uh, you know, whatever, oh, the yeah, French no, new wave and making sure. them his own. But it, it seemed like and at like the time I say, it was that, that's, that's part of the process, uh, you know, and when you're, you know, when you're a filmmaker, it's, it's what you go through. You take from your um, inspirations and, uh, you know, you, you work through that and you develop your own style. But it's, it just seemed a little obvious in this. And, uh, and again, it's the same with his, his, you know, his earlier couple of movies. But... That that's not really a, a criticism as such. It's just I think looking on it with hindsight now, it just feels a lot more noticeable. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. I don't know if you guys. Uh, he's got a little bit of um, that. Uh, he's got a little bit of that. Look at how clever I am. Thing going on. Yeah, yeah. Which but, Tarantino but not, does not, in absolute not, space. But it's not but, too bad. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's um, yeah, no, uh, yeah, totally. And the other thing I would say, the thing that really almost drags this film down for me, mm-hmm. uh, is one casting choice. Uh, you probably know who I'm going to say here, but Joe Strummer is just awful. Just absolutely awful. It's Well, you know, I didn't particularly think that there was anyone in this film that annoyed me because I, I thought really in a film like this, there's, there's just something about the way it's presented that you could probably get away with a lot the the film i mean look basically for jamush presents a film or, or he's always done this at least with all the films that i've seen and i've seen probably about i don't know seven or eight films or something and his films are never in a hurry to go anywhere you know they're very deliberately paced and they're done in uh, you know stylistically in a particular way and he lingers and you know, i don't necessarily see joe strummer his acting as uh, poor or a weak point. It's just, here's our conversation, and it can sound a bit stilted, but that sounds more like a deliberate decision on the part of Jarmusch rather than any sort of yeah. weakness on, uh, on I, um, See, I, I, I would part. disagree. I think, I mean, I think Jarmusch is a renowned Clash fanatic, uh, and I, I think uh, this was, you know, I can get Joe Strummer in the movie here. And he looks the part, but uh, every time he opens his mouth, it's just like he's reading the lines off a card that someone's holding up behind the camera. Mm. He's just, he doesn't emote at all. He's got nothing there. And to be honest, I know a lot of people would disagree with me, but I don't think he's got the charisma to, uh, you know, a lot of people could skate through something like that because of charisma, and he doesn't for Look, me. I, but, I'd, uh, I'd agree with you. I am a hater, was... so. <laughs> uh, uh, what, what would so... Wendy say? Bernie big on the hate. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, you, you, right. you had, did you have a lot of death threats after the last program? No, but I think I may after this one. I'm not sure, but uh... <laughs> I'd be I'd be, ha- I'd be happy to admit that probably Strummer he couldn't have done many other films. I'm not sure what else he would have fitted into. Well, so. he's done. He was in Straight to Hell. Yeah, but again, Alex Cox is like the world's largest Clash fan. So that was Alex Cox right. and a whole bunch of his mates getting drunk and having fun in Straight to Hell. Actually, the other guy that was in Straight to Hell too, that was in this one, was Cy Richardson. Um, you guys know Cy Richardson? Cy Richardson was the dude. He was running the magazine shop, the little yeah, corner yeah. store. I gotcha, yeah. Where he, and he says to the girl, buy some magazines. Come on, buy a book and buy this. You know, yeah, yeah. He's in straight to hell as well, right? Um, I wanted to say, though, like what I was talking about earlier about the three aspects of Elvis, would you guys agree with that? Like, because that's what I really got out of this film was that, you know, the first, the first segment with the two Japanese kids was, you know, the fans 
perspective of Elvis. And then the second aspect with the the Roman girl and uh, Dee Dee. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, Elvis, the, in that second um, in the second story, you've got Tom Noonan. Uh, who, right. who tells uh, the Italian uh, lady that story yeah, yeah. in the diner, that that Elvis thing, how I met Elvis, he passed on the comb to me right. to, to give to you. Right. It's, uh, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I was going to make a point there think... that, that I, I reckon that, because we're talking about that whole 90s movement and coming back to Tarantino, like every time he has a conversation in his films, and I know that you know there, there are some... Getting to be some Tarantino haters, I'm not one of them. But you know, in Pulp Fiction, but yeah, I, I'm I'm not. But in Pulp Fiction, there's a whole lot of the the pop culture type discussions. And yeah, here five years before, in most regards, there's there's more. Like, there are discussions about everyday trivial things, but they don't have to rely on pop culture to do it. But this is the one segment where I think, oh yeah, Tarantino probably watched this. Well, Lord, stole I'm the, going, stole I'm the gonna, structure this, this, of right. so he's, he's even stolen so. from Jim Jarmusch. Yeah, I, I yeah. There's I even that, the, right, I got that. Yep. There's even that bit where you know when they're walking in, the kid, the Japanese kids are walking in, and Sinequa Lee is talking to Screaming Jay about how much Elvis would weigh on other planets. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 You know that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But I think. Yeah. But I think, like I'm saying though. You know, I think the second the second segment is is right. about those that were the closest to Elvis. You know, like his 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 girlfriend or whatever. And the third one is just about Elvis because no spoiler, but the third one is about Elvis and a gun. And in reality, Elvis was known to walk around carrying a handgun when he was drunk because he had been known to shoot out televisions in hotel rooms. Right, mm. the real Elvis. Yep. And then, yeah, you know, and, yeah. and then, you know, and, and he always had these minders, these, he had his entourage, the guys that always were kind of taking care of him. And they're like, you know, Elvis, what are you doing? You know, and he's just like, everybody hates me. No, nobody hates you, man. Like, don't worry about it. what am I doing here? You know, like that kind of thing that really happens with the third segment of this film. Yeah. yeah. Is well, that, that kind of like the third segment? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. But and that's where and and the whole thing about living up to the name is when you know when Joe Strummer is just like oh there he is again oh shit turn that picture around man I don't want to see that shit you know you know and uh, and the funny thing is is you know I was laughing at some of the lines where they in the third part of this where they're talking about uh, you know he says well why you know like why don't they have a Martin Luther King suite and a Malcolm X suite you know. And they were just saying, why, did, why does it have to be all everything based on a white guy? You know, like, why is everything in this, you know, in this whole place? He says, because the white people own this place, man. The white man owns this hotel, you know. Black guy just works here. Well, I definitely think you got a point. But I also think that one of the sort of why the idea about how for, uh, a foreign perspective on America. And it's also, I think, Elvis Presley is one of sort of the most iconic sort of cultural American exports and he's from sure. a time when when American culture was really becoming global culture in the f- 50s and the 60s and so in sort of a cultural sense to some degree we're all Americans and that's sort of I think all these you know Japanese and Italian and British yeah. people and coming to Memphis where sort of the place where sort of this particular cultural icon is 
permeates everything. Well, like, uh, like Tim said, it's, it's a pilgrimage to Mecca, isn't it, almost? So. Right, well, you yeah. know what's really funny? I don't, I don't mean to go off on a little tangent here, but you guys familiar with the band The Residents? Yes. Yeah, we've spoken. Okay, the, yeah, the, Re the Residents did an album called The King and I, E-Y-E. Where it, you know, it's a narration of a grandmother putting her grandson to bed or her grandchildren to bed, and she's telling them the story about a boy who would be king. And it's almost like they're equating, she's equating, you know, the the biblical story of Jesus to Elvis. And what I think is amazing about that is that when you see this film, there's one point where you know uh, the girl, the Japanese girl, is flipping through her scrapbook. And she's showing her yeah. boyfriend all the incarnations of Elvis, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like Buddha. And, and uh... right, right, right. So you know, I I just think you know, it's just like it's like Mojo Nixon used to sing, "Elvis is everywhere." You know. There's also that Dead Kennedy song. Uh, I can't remember which one it is. Elvis... But one of the lyrics is, "Will Elvis take the place of Jesus in a thousand years?" Right, 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 right. Yeah. yeah. But I think you know, there, but it, but there's a. Yeah, there's a lot to be said though about like I'm saying like I really think the film like again is broken down into the three kind of concepts of you know the the fan the idols and then those that are close to him and then finally the man himself you know now, and do, as do pathetic think, as he uh, is do you think that was something that was intentional on John Mush's part or do you think this is something that's just looking into it and thinking about it and it's you know it's all there because of the subject matter i think i think some of it might be intentional okay because oh, like you know oh, like oh, morris man. morris is morris is saying you know how everything seems like you know you you're saying bernie how it seems intentionally bad you know i mean it's bad no no not, not intentionally is, bad not intentionally bad but yeah, i meant i meant not the i meant word, but yeah right but you 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 seem to be put off by it where morris was saying he thought that maybe it was just the dialogue and the way that they were supposed to, you know, present it. Because I think, you know, like Joe Strummer, you know, he he was really pathetic in this role. And even even his hair, his hair, his his hair, they had that little knob of hair hanging. They're sitting in the truck, and he had that kind of like that. He looked like, you know, it was a, I don't know, it was weird. But it's everything that Joe Strummer did just seemed like, you know. Really, like you know, they're calling him Elvis, like because he looks like Elvis. But everybody thought, well, Elvis is like wasn't this hero? He was this pathetic dude, you know. And everybody knows who he is, so they're all like, "Hey, Elvis! Hey, Elvis!" You know? I don't think you should eat that thing. Yeah, you're probably right. You gonna eat? No, I gonna eat that thing. Hey, my plum. Can I go off on another tangent and tell you my favorite Elvis Presley anecdote? Please do. Sure. That actually, that actually is in reality is a story about Jerry Lee Lewis, but you know, he's also from Sun Studios, so I think I can squeeze it in here. Sure. But one night, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis was driving around uh, drunk, out of his mind, with a gun, and he uh, came by Graceland and, you know, went up and rang the bell and said he wanted to talk to Elvis and the guys you know he had all these guys his guards that came out and took a look at him and said well we better you know call the big man see what he says so they called Elvis and says well Jerry Lee's here to see you he's drunk out of his mind and he's got a gun so he said nah nah man you know don't let him in I don't I don't want to talk to him 
And so he went away for a little while, and then he came back, and he ran his car right through the gate. And as all those sort of guards were running towards him, he fell out. You know, the gun fell out on the ground, and he fell out of the car. And he looked up at the guards, and he said, Tell him the killer is here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure he talked to him. I'm not sure I would have either. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Complete tangent. You know, sorry. It's the spirit of Memphis, though, isn't it? Right there. That, that, yeah. That, yeah. That's, that's, so, yeah. that's why it's a very appropriate story for this uh, yeah. show. And, and it, it comes back to, once again, your your whole theme at the beginning, Tim, about you know how this is a music film is because you know any any story that's Memphis-related in popular culture, uh, we you know we hear Memphis, we tend to think of the music we tend to think yeah. of that music exactly. and even though this is not right. a story about a musician uh in its most pure sense but you know, in, in the second segment uh, the ghost of elvis is there and there's a story about right. elvis um the ghost of elvis, elvis is comb comb and uh El- and actually so the I, i'm gonna draw a really long bow here but um and that segment in in the middle where uh, we have uh, Nicoletta Brashi, who's the wife of, um, um, oh, help me, the comedian who was in uh, the Italian segment of Not on Earth, uh, Roberta Benini. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, right. So I she she oh. comes she comes to um, Memphis not to pay homage, not for a pilgrimage, but just to get um, the body of her husband, and she just ends up in this. Uh, in the hotel, you know, due to circumstances, but she's not there because it's the the land of her dreams. She's not ended up with any. It's all been circumstantial, and I think because of what I said before, everyone sort of goes to Memphis, be it the characters in the beginning or the Joe Strummer character later, you know, mistakenly, but with his rockabilly cat outfit, everyone has their perception of what Memphis is supposed to look like. And ultimately they end up disappointed because, you know, Jumbo shows us the other side of town. Whereas this woman who has no perception at all, she's not, or she doesn't really care either way. She's just there for her husband. She's the one who sees Literally, she sees the ghost of Elvis, and I, I don't know. My long bow here is that you know Jamush is probably saying, if you go anywhere with these perceptions, you'll either ultimately be disappointed or you'll you'll miss the point. Whereas if you go yeah, there yeah. with an open mind, yeah, it'll come, it'll come to you in its own way. That's right. a little bit true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I, I love the bit though when she 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 does see the ghost of Elvis, and Elvis is. Oh, I'm sorry, man. I got the wrong place. I shouldn't be here. <laughs> That's just so funny. You know, he's just like, oops, oops you're not meant to see this. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I think you're absolutely right, Morris. And I also think like the sort of the two sort of moments of magic, if you want to call it that, that happens, sort of the kind of thing you expect to happen when you go to Memphis is, like you just mentioned, even if it's by accident, you know, the ghost of Elvis appearing. And then uh, there's just that moment with the Japanese uh, couple in the first segment, where after they've made love, I think he's uh, standing... Oh yeah, I know what you're going to say. And he's looking out at the the window, and there's the neon light, and there's the sound of the train in the background. He says something, he just says, it's cool or something. That's like a little sort of magical moment. That's why they came to Memphis, right? 
Yeah. 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 Just because, because I, second, I, he's he's living it, right. isn't he? It's actually yeah, everything yeah, he right. wanted it to be just at that moment. Right. Yeah, yeah. I thought you were gonna say, Hank, is after after they finish making love, they have a little bit of an argument. And they're both on both sides of the bed, and then all of a sudden, over the radio, Blue Moon comes on. I love and that moment. Yeah, and then they and then she just says, "Hold me," and he says, yeah. Like, yeah." And they're laying in bed yeah. in Memphis, and it's just like, "Yeah, yeah. man." Like, uh, and it's well, that, that song is the, uh, the sorry, Hank, go on. No, I was just saying that's exactly right. That's uh, Elvis bringing them together again. Yeah. So Which, yeah. yeah. Well, that, that song, whenever that song plays, that's a pivotal point in each story, isn't it? And again, perhaps and that's a, the magic right there. And it's a great, great song. Also because it's yeah. just so weak, that sort of sort of, you know, weird, haunting atmosphere in that song. Oh, it's kind of yeah. right. really scary. It's as scary as uh, the use of Roy Orbison in Blue Velvet. <laughs> yeah. Right, 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 right. Another thing that's pretty funny about foreigners' reaction to American culture is, first of all, there's the uh, the Japanese couple when sort of they hear the gunshot and one of them asks, uh, was that a gunshot? And the other one said, yeah, probably. It's America. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and then, yeah. and then in, in the next scene with the Italian woman, so gunshot and somebody says, "Yeah, probably a 38." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was funny too. Yeah. And then when Screaming Jay, when Screaming Jay hears it, he's just like, you know, go check that out. That sounds like a gunshot. Yeah, go check that out. <laughs> Room 22. Yeah, I think, I think what Morris, Morris, you nailed it right on the head because I think Absolutely. that the whole, the whole thing is, I think that you go into Memphis like an empty sponge. And you absorb it instead of going in already filled with 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 kind of you know ideals. And I think that that's where you know with the Japanese couple they go in expecting certain things and they, and they don't get what they thought they would get. They get something else. And then you know with Joe Strummer, where he's just like you know. Nobody works in this town, man, and I just got laid off. I wouldn't even be in this fucking town if it wasn't for that girl. You know, like it's it's just yeah. not it's 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 not the glamorous side of of Memphis, the 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 Beale Beale and Maine, you know, and that whole uh, you know the rock and roll lifestyle of Memphis. It's not there's none of that at all because I mean it's just like even where. Uh, Oh, I forget his name now. The one, the one African American dude, where he's sitting with Buscemi and the uh, Strummer in the third segment, where he's just like, "What the hell are you Robinson. white guys doing here?" Yeah, Will Robinson, right? Danger Will Robinson, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and when he when he says, you know, what the hell are you white guys doing here, anyways, man? This is a blacks out of town, a black hotel, and a couple of white cracker dudes. Like, oh fuck this shit, you know? Like he's he's getting mad about it, you know. But I, you know, and I, and I think that's kind of funny because it's, it is, it does show the the other side of the coin of Memphis, you know. Yeah, there's definitely that sort of contrast Memphis. between the foreigners who are sort of experiencing this sort of mythological Memphis or whatever you want to call it, and then there's sort of the sort of the local population who are just sort of bumbling around in their own sort of stupid little plots, you know. And right. dumb shit. And to, just sort of coming back to that middle segment, what really personifies that? very directly before the appearance of the ghost i mean i went and mentioned more in a more broad sense all the other characters in the film have their perceptions but just purely by their actions we have uh you know, the, the 
Italian woman played by Nicoletta Brasci who sees Elvis and she's a bit more reserved and a bit more quiet and is not sure what's going on. And then you have uh, the American woman uh, played by Elizabeth Bracco who just talks a mile a minute about everything that just seems so trivial and, and she's really not open to anything. And yeah, she's maybe, you know, this metaphor of the American experience where she's... Uh, yeah. Just yeah, no, I can see talking, that. Yeah. Talking a mile a minute and not really so like seeing the magic that's there if you just pay attention. Yeah, yeah. she's just caught up in her own thing. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to make mention of one more thing, and we've been talking about the musical influence over the film, the music with or the, the how the characters experience Memphis. But I just want to talk a little bit about the soundtrack itself. Um, it was written by John Lurie, who had already lounge appeared. lizards. Right, yeah. right. He, he'd, and, and he'd also appeared in um, Stranger Than Paradise. Stranger Than Paradise, and, yeah. And Down By Law. And um, I just think that, you know, not, notwithstanding like the, um, the songs that we hear on the radio or, or the, the sun music that we hear over the soundtrack, but, you know, John Lurie's own music for this film just works absolutely so perfectly. Like, you know, John, uh, Jim Jarmusch's film, follows at its own meandering pace and the music really reflects that we don't get the glamorous uh, um, iconic side of memphis we get a more realistic side of memphis and the music has just the right level of melancholy maybe melancholy is too strong a word but i'll use it anyway uh it, it really truly reflects the uh the ordinariness that we see on that side of memphis and i just think he's done an absolutely fantastic job and it sort of reminded me a little bit of the music of Bill Frisell in a way. Uh, Frisell had yeah, gone, yeah, and he, he incorporated the banjo aspect that to me right. really struck me. So as well, my favourite line is attributed to um, Screamin' Jay Hawkins, where he says something to the effect of, uh, uh, th there's a scene where um, the uh, Japanese tourists go and give uh, Sinkwe Lee as a tip. They don't give the him plum. money, they, they give him a Japanese yeah. plum, and Screamin' <laughs> Jay, Screamin Jay eats it, and he says to him later, Say, do you have any more of those Japanese plums, or any other exotic fruits from around the globe? <laughs> Fantastic. My favorite line is when somebody says, Not Madonna, give me a break. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, my favorite one, uh, mine's actually, it's one that's on the uh, IMDb page, but it's when uh, Johnny or Elvis is uh, kind of ranting a bit and says, Don't call me Elvis. If you can't use my proper name, why don't you try Carl Perkins Jr. or something? <laughs> I mean, I don't call yeah, them right. Sam and Dave, do I? And one of the guys comes over and says, "Hey, man, my name, my is, name is Dave." Dave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was really funny. Or, or I, yeah. I love the line where one somebody says, "You know, I'm the man that's going to make you use that gun." Yeah, yeah. And who yeah. was that, yeah, yeah. Tim? That was oh. Rickett's Red Flare, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Danger, danger! Will Robinson, Will Robinson! Danger, danger! Shut the fuck up! Hey, my brother-in-law, how you doing? Man, your breath. What have you been drinking? Smells like kerosene. Listen, I got to ask you this favor. Will, 
we in a little trouble. And we need a place to stay invisible for a little while. You know, just till it get light out. Trouble. Here we go again. That's part for the course, Will Robinson. Please, man. Just for a little while. Don't tell your sister. Because if you do, we both be in trouble. Not a word. Ever. Room 22. That room? That room. Like, I was going to say, too, that, you know, Morris, how you were saying that uh, you felt that maybe, you know, Tarantino had, had kind of cribbed off of this. Yep. I, I felt, too, did any of you guys get a Twin Peaks feeling from this, too? I'm kind of. Confess, I've still not watched Twin Peaks, so uh, don't hang it on. Again, I get, it's I get, all, it was like I was I saying did, earlier, Tim, it's, uh, it just feels like stuff from around that period all has right. that, that kind of indie, I don't know, it's not a shared style, but it was, uh, I don't know, a lot, a lot of movies, TV shows from that period it was just have quirky, that feel. A, a, a quirky. Quirky, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, definitely. Because... Oh, sorry, 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 to interrupt, sorry to interrupt. I was going to say, uh, I already mentioned this, I think, in our Prairie Home Companion episode. But talking about this now, uh, the show I would guess I'd compare this to in, in spirit anyway. I know. Yeah. Northern Exposure. Oh, you read my mind. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, totally. yeah, yeah, yeah. And Northern Exposure that... was pretty uh, influenced by Twin Peaks. You could t- certainly right. make the comparison there. So, yeah, yeah. But well, it's kind of like that. Uh, David Lynch vibe, vibe thing about looking sort of the backside, if you want to call it that, sort of not not you know, sort of yeah, front, it's the front, not, not the front everyday. Thing, it's sort of, it's the right. stuff underneath, so, isn't it? Yeah. The the alleys and the gas stations and the pool halls and the right. hotels. Right. Well, that's what I was yeah. saying. It's, it it kind of I got that vibe from watching it again last night. That real Lynch feel, where yeah, you know, I agree. you know, and even even the guy that really made it. For me, re- made it really feel like it was a Lynch film was uh, Tom Noonan. Yes. Oh yeah. Let, let's talk about he, Tom Noonan. I love. He's Tom so. Noonan. He's so fucking he's just creepy like, in this, though. He's oh. the weird fucking actor, man. And why don't he? Yeah. Just the way he's dressed on, in this. That right, 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 right. Shirt and slacks combo, and there's just that's unbelievable. It's like he walked out of a David right. Lynch film, isn't it? I was just gonna say he should unbutton his shirt a little, shouldn't he? <laughs> a little more. <laughs> I love right. that guy. No, that's, all I that's all I wanted to say. Yeah, no, he is a bit fantastic where she's, uh, The girl, she's leaving, and he says, you know, excuse me, ma'am, can I just have one more minute of your time? She says, no, I have to go. And she's walking down the street, and they're following her. Noonan, yeah. Noonan and the other guy are following her, and you just see her kind of like doing this kind of zombie walk. Like kind of like half in a daze, like she doesn't know where she's going, and she's just tripping down the street, and they're just right behind her, like they're just waiting for her to stop so they can, you know. It's, it's just really, ugh. Yeah, really it's kind of weird. menacing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Totally. All right. So, any final thoughts? Any final words you want to say about the film? Final. Rating? Can I um? Can I just clarify here, Morris? Yeah. Um, I, I might have given the wrong impression. I, I, I don't certainly don't think the film is bad, and I, I don't think that um, the style of acting which John Moose was obviously going for, uh, you know, I don't think that was intentionally bad either. 
Uh, and my problem was with Strummer. I mean, I think everybody no, else that's, in that's the film. The impre- that's the impression that I got was you were talking about Strummer. I didn't think you were. Uh, oh, okay. Right, yeah, yeah. I think no, Tim no, no. might have mentioned, but uh, I didn't want to say. I just I don't think Strummer is a good enough actor to act the way that Jarmusch wanted his actors to act because everybody else acquits himself perfectly. It's just Strummer. I just I don't think has got it. So yeah, I just wanted to clarify that I wasn't uh, bad sure, thing, no, no, you know. I, I know what you're talking cool. about. Yeah. Cool. All right. He's no El- he's no Elvis Presley. He's no Elvis Presley, is what you're saying. Hell no! You watch Elvis Presley and Race the Bait, and uh, then you watch uh, Clam you watch Joe Strummer in this Clam Bake, Blue Hawaii. Oh, jeez, we could go yeah, on. That's wrong. When are we? Frank, we're we're going to have to do some it. Elvis movies at some point. You realise this? Oh Christ! I mean, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I did say at the beginning of the show that we'll cover Rattle and Hummer. We'll have the cover of Viva Las Vegas. Yeah. You know, you know what I always thought was funny about Elvis too was, uh, did you guys ever hear the Eddie Murphy bit where he's talking about Elvis, where he said that every every Elvis movie, whatever anybody would say to Elvis, he could turn it into a song. It's like somebody would say, you know, like, hey Elvis, do you want to go downtown? Do you want to go downtown? You know, it's like, Elvis, do you want some lemonade? Lemonade, that cool refreshing drink. You know, like, and it's like every it would just. Yeah. Everything, every piece of dialogue in an Elvis movie could be turned into an instant song, you know, it was just... Well, that's because Elvis was magical. He is the, the closest thing we've had to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Can I mention one more thing? Absolutely. Sure. Which is actually one of my favorite things about the, this movie, uh, the cinematography. Robbie Mueller, the German right. cinematographer. Oh, yeah. I yeah. And he's, worked with, uh, he worked with... Uh, Wim Benders and Lars von Trier and yeah, all these yeah. people. Right. It's really Dancer, the sort of Dancer in the Dark. But he won an award in Paris, Texas, didn't he? Yeah, and he uh, he shot Repo Man, actually. Oh, wow. Right. And he shot one another of my favorite movies of all time, To Live and Die in L.A. Ooh, right, yeah. right, right, so, yeah, yeah. so right. So he's been around a little. And I, I think the cinematography and the look and the feel of the film is one of the absolute most favorite things about the movie. He did, the, I would he did Wings of Desire, yeah. too, right? He did Wings I, of Desire too, right? I can't remember, but he worked with the uh, Wendas a lot, so he probably did. I, yeah. I don't remember. Yeah. Right, I know we're supposed to be slowing this show down, we're supposed to be slowing the mystery train down, but one question that I'll put to you guys that we haven't discussed yet, as long as you're bringing Robbie Mueller up, is that every film that uh, Jamush had made to this point had been in black and white. And this film, I think it might have been his first film in color, and yet it could quite very easily have worked in black and white. Do you guys oh, yeah. have any idea why he went to color? Was it a stylistic decision? Was it, oh, I can afford color film now? Or what do you think that, um, can you? Maybe, sort of- uh, you know, I'm going out on a limb here, I don't know, but you know, it's foreigners' viewpoints of America and Memphis specifically, and particularly the, the Japanese couple at the start, mm. um, you know, it's it's almost like well, it's not Disneyland, but they're going to visit this mythical, amazing thing. And, technical. Uh, yeah, exactly. Technicolor. It's like you know, yeah, technical. Oh, so it's like the Wizard uh, of Oz. Yeah, kind right. of. I don't know. Okay. I suspect it's more likely that he just had enough money to film it in color. But oh no, no, no! <laughs> don't, don't say that. I, don't I like know. your I like your first I like your first reason better. Do you know? And, see, uh, because when, when I was watching this, one, one of my first notes was Memphis looks shitty but magical. <laughs> right. That's great. I like that a lot. You know, with, with the uh, the color there, it just yeah, I, I think so. I don't know, maybe I don't know. And the uh, lipstick and neon looks better in color. Oh yeah, oh, the right. white lipstick that she wears—that's amazing. 
Wave. And uh, Screaming, oh, yeah. Screaming Jay's uh, Blood Red Oh, his jacket. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, thank yeah. you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, fair, yeah. Or it had to be in colour for that alone. Yeah. Did you also? Uh, sorry, just a very quick thing as well. Um, again, like uh, John Musha's earlier films, the camera hardly moves in this. A lot of static shots. There's a couple of sort of dolly type shots, uh, but that's it. Camera. Well, that's, that's actually an interesting thing because every time you see someone walk down the street, um, he does a lot of profile shots and from a distance is never yeah you hardly ever see someone going well i'm sure you'll there'll be people who write in and prove me wrong or you guys might prove me wrong but it seems like a lot of the time he has a theme of following someone from a distance in profile that's that yes. i guess your dolly shot as you were talking about yeah um yeah. and i'd love to sort of know what his uh, stylistic reason for that i mean there was too much of it to be purely coincidental there must have been some underlying reason behind that but uh, i'm not well versed enough to be able to suggest why but i'm sure that, that that's an interesting walking pace that makes sense that sort of most of these characters are walking around town and sort of that's the pace of the camera it's just following which is the pace of the story right there's, there's absolutely he's yeah not, he's not in a hurry to get anywhere all right well look at this point in time i think we um have probably gone and said as much as we have to say well maybe we could go for another two hours but uh i'm sorry can i mention one more thing very briefly <laughs> sure that if you're making sort of an uh, you know indie film sort of an urban drama about sort of characters stupid characters bumbling around doing stupid shit steve Bushimi absolutely has to be in there and he is oh absolutely oh what was the line that he uses after he breaks the uh, after he breaks that bottle he says it's only an accident it's only a bottle or something like that right he, when he gets mad about uh, something with joe's drummer and he says so you mean to tell me you're not even my you know yeah. like, not my brother what the hell yeah yeah you're not my brother-in-law what the hell man like oh god I was, I was also going to say, we referred um, before to uh, the film In the Soup, and there's a moment in In the Soup which I reckon is a direct lift from this. So the, the moment after uh, the Steve Bashimi and uh, the Joe Strummer character and um, I forgot the name of the actor, but uh, Will Robinson, they're all in the truck and Bashimi's sitting in the middle of them. And he has this look on his face, thinking, how the hell did I get here? It sort of parallels yeah. that moment in, in the soup where he's sitting in between um, uh, Seymour Cassell and his psychotic brother Skippy in the middle of the night, wondering, how the hell did I get here? It looks you know, almost like they thought, right, it worked there, we're going to make it work here as well. I think there's like actually the a idea that at uh, some point in uh, the late 80s, uh, where it uh, decreed that Steve Buscemi had to be in every independent film that was made over the next five yep. or so years. Have, have you watched um, Have you watched that film, uh, Living in Oblivion? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, wasn't that Tom DeSillo directed that? Who Correct. Was, uh, right. Right. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't John Bush's editor or something? He he had something yeah. to do with John Bush for sure. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. Trees yeah. Lounge. Yeah, That's another good one. Yeah. yeah. Trees Lounge is in there. Uh, that, 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 that was a Buscemi directed uh, film, wasn't it? Yeah, his first, That's I think. Right. Yeah. 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 I like the idea that... Uh, is, uh, is a reason to watch it, you know? When he's when they're sitting in the truck and he's passing the bottle and in the beginning he's just like, you know, no, I don't drink. No, I don't drink. No, I don't drink. And finally he's like, give me that fucking bottle. <laughs> you got over that. Yeah. Oh, right. yeah. 
We we done? Yeah. Good. All right. Okay. We can now close this conversation. And um, first of all, say thank you once again so much to Hank for uh, being uh, being our Wendy. <laughs> well, you I have a blast, rephrase that, Maurice. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much for uh, stepping in to uh, make this a quartet while Wendy was absent. Um, we really, really appreciate it. You're welcome back yeah. uh, anytime to uh, to the show. Uh, if we, we can have a quintet, if uh, if we can get Wendy back. Um, and thank you, guys. Wonderful. Thank you, oh, Hank. thank you, Hank. Yeah. Thank you so much, Hank. So, it was a pleasure. So, uh, given that Wendy is absent and she doesn't have the chance to uh, pick next month's film because it would have been her turn, we uh, we revert to you, Senor Stickwell. What film have you got selected for uh, for November? So, before I do that, Morris, should we uh, should we uh, rate Mystery Train or just give our? Uh... We don't do our... the numbers. We don't do the numbers thing on this. We're not numbers as such, but we, we normally say whether it's a recommend or not, don't we? Oh, but uh, yes, I think it's fairly apparent that. Uh, yep, yep, definitely. This is two thumbs up from me for sure. Yeah, I, I, I think we all would uh, recommend this one definitely. Oh yeah. Uh, cool. All right. Sorry to derail that. Okay. Well, my choice for next month then mm-hmm. um, is a film from 1983 which I first saw probably a few years after that. Uh, American film directed by Penelope Spheris, who was probably a lot more famous for uh, other movies she may have made. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Suburbia. Are you aware of this one? Nice. Oh, yeah. oh okay, yeah. Okay, this is uh, this is one of the, I guess, the classic punk movies, I guess. Oh, yeah. Um, this... So, yeah. Oh, okay. That film actually... Was when when back in the days of VHS when they were hard to come by. I remember one video store in my hometown where you actually had to put down like fifty bucks to actually <laughs> rent that film because that film was one that was so commonly stolen. It was that or the Rock and Roll Swindle. Either one of them, you yeah. had to put down fifty or sixty dollars deposit just to uh, rent the videotape. Yeah, yeah, I can believe that. Yeah. All right. I'll look so, uh, to, yeah, uh, next month is Suburbia. Excellent. Look forward to... Uh, That's great. Good giving, choice. Giving that a try. I, I thought you were going to say the decline of Western civilization, but I guess that's... Yeah. Uh, Do you know, it was funny. I I, uh, I was kind of thinking about that one, but uh, maybe a, a later date. Maybe we could do a double of the part one and part two of those sometime, but uh, we'll see. Excellent. All right. Thanks. So, until, um, uh, until next month... Uh, we look forward to um, join- when we look forward to joining you again. Please feel free to um, write a review about us on iTunes if you like it. Even if you don't like it, write a review. Let your friends know that we exist. Um, we'd like to have uh, you know, a few more thousand listeners. I mean, we're doing all right, but you know, we'd like another couple of thousand. That'd be great. Um, and um, email us or write on the Facebook group, and we'll probably reserve maybe a, uh, uh, you know, a few shows next year. Uh, Purely for your suggestions, I think, because um, we're, we're near the end of uh, our first year of, uh, of uh, this podcast. Wow. It's been really, my goodness, very yeah. exciting, and it's gone very, very quick. We only got two more shows, and then you know the end of our first year of broadcast or podcast. Uh, so I think we'll we'll make a deliberate thing to do one in every I don't know how one in every three shows. We might go to um, a uh, uh, a, a listener request so um that'll be very very exciting but um uh yep so anyway but let's get through the rest of uh, this year so uh, okay november 
Suburbia is Bernie's pick. And um, anyway, once again, thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you again in November for... Um, uh, I almost said love that album. <laughs> for C. <laughs> for C here. Thanks so much for joining us. Cheers, guys. Thank <laughs> you.